0: Genesis chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And when she saw that she conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servants in your power do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from? Where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarah. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son and shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction." He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer Lahai Roy, it lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram. This is God's word. May the Lord give us understanding. You may be seated and we will ask the Lord for his help. Father in heaven, we are seeing such a tragic event in the life of your people here, and in seeing this, we're reminded of ourselves. Lord, I pray that as we study this, that we would also be reminded of your grace. We'd be even shocked a little bit by it, and we would better understand what it means that you've forgiven us. Give us that understanding today with your Spirit helping us. In Christ's name, amen. Genesis, as, as you might have noticed, is, is, um, is a bit of a roller coaster. And, and I, I don't mean that in like the emotional ups and downs, but I mean that in, in, in the kind of roller coasters with the loop-de-loops. Um, we're moving forward in redemptive history, moving on a track forward, And then we come to a loop-de-loop, and and we think, oh, we've been here before. I've experienced this before. I've done this. Only now you're further along the track. You could also say that Genesis is like an old cartoon, like one of those, I remember watching Tom and Jerry, and you see the cats chasing the mouse. That happens all the time on the screen. But in the background, behind the cat chasing the mouse, there's the same stuff, right? Going, Going before you or behind you, you have the same images going by again and again and again. Lamp, chair, door, stairs, lamp, chair, door, stairs. It's as if this, this house is eternal, running in one direction. And I point that out because Genesis, 6, Genesis chapter 16 is the Abram and Sarai version of something we've seen before. It's the Abram and and Sarai version of the Adam and Eve story back in Genesis chapter 3. And if that has caught you off guard, let me show you what I mean because this is the lens through which we will read this text. First of all, Adam brought out of the ground and put into the garden of Eden. The Lord says to Abram uh, recently, I brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans, and the Lord brought him into the land of Canaan, which, as we've seen, has some very clear Garden of Eden-like qualities to it. In the garden, you have the presence of God and the promise of God's blessing, along with that, that great promise of fruitful multiplication, and you have the command to rule over the land. And then there is an abundance of provision Endless food and pleasure for Adam and Eve to to, to have as a result of what God has provided. In Abram's life, as we're studying Abram, we're seeing that Abram is dwelling in the land of promise. It's not his yet, but he's been very well provided for here in this land. And the Lord has even met with Abram on a few occasions, often near trees. And God has promised Abram extremely fruitful multiplication, as many offspring as there are stars in the sky and dust of the earth. In Genesis 3, the wife of the man is led by the serpent to be dissatisfied with God's provision. And she begins to question God's goodness and faithfulness. And rather than living in the thankfulness of all that God has provided for her, she questions God's reasons For keeping the one thing from her, the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And in our passage, the Lord, likewise, has provided abundantly for Abram and Sarai. Even though they are sojourners in this land, he has promised a child to Abram. And rather than trusting in the Lord's timing with a heart of thankfulness, the woman says that the Lord is holding something back from her. Genesis chapter 16, verse 2. Look at our text. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. In Genesis chapter 3, the woman gives in to that temptation. And look at the language Moses uses in verse 6. Uh, To describe that, uh, well, you don't have to turn back there. I'll read it for you. So so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Verse 3 in our text has almost the exact same verbiage. Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Exactly the same thing. Back in Genesis, the Lord judges Adam for listening to the voice of his wife. God says in, in Genesis 3, verse 17, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it, and then you have the rest of the judgment. Now look at chapter 16. Sarah goes on in verse 2: Go into my servant, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. In the garden, Genesis 3, immediately following that sin that had taken place, verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They had been in a happy relationship together, but now there's division between them, and they must clothe themselves. They're ashamed of one another. And in Genesis chapter 16, jump ahead again, immediately following the sin, And when she, Hagar, saw, remember Genesis 3, they saw, Genesis 16, when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Again, division in the household introduced because of sin. In both cases, there is an immediate earthly consequence of what's taken place. After they've sinned, Adam and Eve, suffering under the shame of their own sin, hide, don't they? They hide from God. Then the Lord, walking through the garden, calls out, where are you? And then the time of judgment begins. And the ultimate outcome is that the man and woman are exiled from the garden. But the Lord tells the woman what will happen to her offspring. Here in Canaan, it's a little bit different. Actually, pay careful attention here. Someone does run and hide after the sin incident or the sin's incident someone does run and hide but it isn't the adam and eve parallel rather it's hagar and hagar doesn't hide from the wrath of the lord she's running to hide from the wrath of sarai who has put herself in the place of the lord and in the wilderness when the lord calls out to hagar he doesn't say where are you but he does ask a question that he already knows the answer to where have you come from and where are you going he knows doesn't he very much like the lord's questioning in the garden there are loads of parallels between these two stories. I have cut half of mine out of the sermon for, your, for time's sake. But once you begin to see the, the Eden story unfolding here in Abram's Canaan, you can't unsee it. And the purpose in writing the stories side by side like this is that once you see the parallels between the stories the differences between the stories stand out even brighter. They are contrasted. And the biggest, brightest, most conspicuous difference between these two stories is the way that the Lord responds to the sin. In the garden after the sin, the Lord pronounced judgment on the man and woman, and he exiled them from the garden. But when the Lord shows up to deal with the issues here in Canaan, we do not see an exile. There's no banning from the garden. There are no curses pronounced, no removal of blessings, no reversal of promises. Rather than bringing divine judgment, the Lord responds to Abram's sin with grace and mercy. So the big question that we have today is, that we, that we must ask, as, we, as, as sincere Bible readers, what happened between Eden and Canaan? Did God change? Has God somehow softened between Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 16? Or is there something else going on? The, Keep that question in mind as we work our way through the the, the text this morning. One thing is for certain, as we have read this, we all recognize that human sin still rages on. What's happening in the hearts of Sarai and Hagar and Abram is very similar to what was going on in the hearts of Adam and Eve. And we see with Sarai and Hagar and Abram many of the same impulses, I hope you see this, many of the same impulses and temptations that you and I face. God in his kindness to us is holding up a mirror for you and me so that we can see ourselves here in Sarai and Hagar and and Abram. So let's not just read this and examine these three characters as cold and distant sociologists. Yeah, that's not the intent here. As James says to us, don't look at yourselves in the mirror that God has given you and then turn around and forget what you look like. If God has memorialized these sinful humans and put all of their shame on display for us, then we must be willing to learn about our own sins. So let's do that now. But then, then, Because God's response to sin is so seemingly different in Genesis 16 than it was in Genesis 3, we're going to spend the second half of the sermon grasping that graciousness of God, the the response of God, because that really is the the major point here. Let's first then look and examine the sin that has taken place. So fortunately, since we've got one less song today, you have two sides of paper to take notes on. Um, uh, and you might need them uh, because you're going to find some, uh, a, a lot that here between these characters that um, remind you of yourself that you will need to seek the Lord's help in. <laughs> I know I have this week. This has been a, a tough text to, to see myself in. First of all, let's get something out of the way, though, before we get into the study of these sins. You may push back uh, and say, Dustin, Nowhere in the Bible, up to this point, has God explicitly said, Thou shalt not take your wife's servant to be your second wife. We have not seen an explicit command against what Abram and Sarai and Hagar do here. There has been no explicit command even against adultery, no explicit command against polygamy, no explicit command against forcing a servant into a sexual relationship. And it's also worth noting that decision, the decision that that Abram and Sarai made to, to, to use Hagar as a surrogate was a very normal decision in their culture. You read Hammurabi's Code from Ancient Babylon, you're going to see instructions about how to do this the right way. The the right way. If a woman had not had a child, it was both lawful and culturally acceptable, expected even for her to use the servant as a surrogate womb. But we know from studying the, the text so far, that just because something is culturally acceptable and legal even, Does not mean that it is moral. That's true for Abram and Sarai here as we study this, and it's true for us today with all the numerous fertility treatments that we have available. No technology, though, even if legal, even if culturally acceptable, should be embraced without biblical consideration, right? So that's just. A little sidebar there, but God God has shown us positively, so we're looking, or there's no explicit commands against what they do. How do we know that what they do have done is sinful? Well, God has shown us, in Genesis 1 and 2, a positive declaration of what marriage is meant to be. Going back, you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, we see God's design for marriage. We see what God has made it to be. Marriage was made by God to be a solitary, one-flesh union. Not two or three one-flesh unions. So when Abram and Sarai depart from that design and introduce a third person in, it's a corruption of God's design. It is less than the good. It is sin, even if it has not been spelled out for us and prohibited. Secondly, the way that This story so closely parallels the fall in the Garden of Eden that should be a clue to us that what is happening here in Canaan is a fall of sorts. So even though God never says to Abram or Sarai, you disobeyed me, or what you did was sinful, we as the readers know that what is happening here in Genesis 16 is sin. Lots of it. Not only that, but the consequences So one more argument that this is sin that has taken place. The consequences of what happens are bad. There are short-term consequences. There are long-term consequences of what happens here just in these six verses. And that should be enough for us to know that what they've done is not good. All right. So with that out of the way, let's examine these sins. It begins with Sarai's attitude towards the Lord. Look again at her words in verse 2. So chapter 16, verse 2. Keep it open. We're just going to go verse by verse. She has this this edge in her heart, doesn't she? She says in verse 2, Behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Now, is Sarai correct in that observation? In a sense, yeah. Children are a gift from the Lord. Sarai has not received that gift. So the Lord is ultimately responsible for withholding children from Sarai. Just as the Lord withheld the tree of knowledge of good and evil from Eve. But here's the thing. Oftentimes, what the Lord withholds is for our own good. The Lord forbade the tree from Adam and Eve for their own good. And likewise, the Lord is withholding children from Abram and Sarai, for their own good. He's teaching them. He's teaching them to trust Him to fulfill His promises. He's teaching them to trust His goodness, to trust His faithfulness. God is working for their good in, his, in their waiting. God is working for your good in your waiting regardless of what it is that you're waiting on, whether it's something as ultimate as the return of Christ, or if you're waiting on someone you love to return to Christ, or even something mundane like waiting on a a new job or promotion or waiting on your baby dealer to sleep through the night. The Lord is working in you in your waiting. He's teaching you. He's teaching you humility. He's teaching you that you're not God. That you aren't in control, that's okay. He's teaching you that what what it means to trust him, even in your impatience, even in your anger, even in your anxiety. Second Peter chapter three is excellent on this subject. There are those in the in, in the church that Peter's writing to who are upset that the Lord has not yet returned, and they're beginning to doubt. Like Sarai, and, and, and Peter says essentially, Look, the Lord isn't late. The Lord's never late. The Lord is being patient with you. That's why he hasn't returned. See what Peter does? He flips the script. It's not that the Lord is late and we're all waiting on him, rather, it's that the Lord is waiting on you. Do not count what seems like delay as God being aloof or unloving. Rather, ask the Lord to teach you humility in that time. Ask the Lord to help you trust him and see his timing, not as contrary to his goodness, but see his timing as part and parcel of his goodness and his mercy toward you. Otherwise, you're going to pull a Sarai. It's impossible not to. Rather than humbling herself and receiving the sanctification from the Lord, Sarai, with a grumbling and unbelieving heart, says, well, if God is withholding this good thing from me, then it must be he's either powerless to fulfill his promises, or he's a liar. Either way, I will get it myself. I'll get it myself, and this this lack of faith This desire in Sarai's heart gives way to further sin. Look what happens. First, she flips the marital order and she starts commanding her husband. In the second part of verse two, go into my servant. We could say that in lots of different ways, but I think of with a finger pointed here because she's commanding. Go into my... Talking to Abram, she's making commands to her husband. She's flipped the marital order. Then she dehumanizes and demoralizes Hagar. It may be that I may obtain children by her. Sarai's unbelief and her grumbling and her questioning of God's goodness overflows out, boils over into dishonoring her husband and then into treating Hagar like a mechanical surrogate. All so that Sarai can get what Sarai wants. Oftentimes we don't realize what's happening when we begin to do that, do we? We don't realize the first sin of grumbling and questioning God's goodness because it's internal. But these more outward sins are very visible, aren't they? They can be a, a sign of that in, inward heart trouble. So, so let's, just, let's just take this straight across. Women... If you find yourselves, like Sarai, commanding your husbands, whether that be through nagging or whining or terse statements, however it is, if this, is, if this type of presumptuous leading in the household is, is expressing itself from you, pause a moment and ask yourself, Why am I trying to exert this dominance over my husband? Why am I flipping God's order? It could could just be through pausing and asking yourself, why am I doing this? That you will realize you are desiring something outside of what God has ordained for you. Or you are insisting on something now that God has ordained would come later. In other words, you aren't trusting his goodness. And if you catch yourself treating another woman the way that Sarai is treating Hagar here, if you find yourself using other people as objects, then then again, pause and ask, why am I treating this person this way? Why am I yelling at the poor checkout girl? Or this customer service lady? Why am I treating my mom this way? Or my daughter, or my sister, or that slow driver, I don't even know, like this. It's very, very likely that you Like Sarai, have begun to desire more control over your situation than what God has ordained for you. The sin of unbelief in you has persuaded you that what you want is more important than the health of your marriage or the dignity and the well-being of the people around you. Well, that's just the beginning of this debacle. Sarai's sin domino hits Abram's domino, and what does he do? He just falls right over, doesn't he? As the spiritual leader of the home, he could have taken the faithful route and told his wife, no, in a nice way even. Better yet, he could have been leading her for these past 10 years that they've been living in Canaan. He could have been teaching her to trust in the Lord's promises so that she was less prone to this sin because of his faithful leadership. He could have sought counsel Couldn't he? He could have heard Sarai's commands and thought, man, Sarai's really struggling with this. I need to talk to someone wiser than me about this. He could have gone to Melchizedek. We just met him. Seems like a great priest. He could have prayed even, right? Just the bare minimum, which is actually a really wonderful, great, and powerful thing. He could have prayed and asked the Lord for his help. But none of those things happened. And instead, what we see with Abram is what we saw with Adam in the garden and what we see in many of our own lives, that that deceitfully wicked sin of passivity that so easily trips men up. Here it is again. Abram takes the route of least resistance. He says to himself, oh, my wife is anxious. Better to just do what she says. Perhaps then she'll calm down. Brothers, this is not the faithful response. Nor is it wise. What looks to be the path of least resistance, the passive route, will prove to make matters much, much worse in Abram's situation We'll come back to him in a moment because he's not finished being foolish. But the sin in Sarai's heart has caused her to fall onto Abram, who, because he is a weak sinner as well, then falls and sins against Hagar. So you have this picture of dominoes falling down. Now, if there's a victim in this episode, it's Hagar. She's owned by Sarah. She doesn't have autonomy even over her own body, so she does what Sarai tells her to do. And she also does whatever Abram forces her to do because she doesn't have a choice. She's a servant. But while she is a powerless victim, she isn't innocent. Victims can be sinners too. Victims are sinners too. So after Hagar is sinned against, she becomes pregnant. And then once she knows that she's pregnant, verse Look at verse 4. It says, she looked with contempt upon Sarai. That means that she looked down on her. Some of your translations say she despised her. And it's not because we, we think in our context, we think, oh, this is, she's upset because of what Sarai has put her through. And this isn't resentment for mistreatment. Not yet. What, what the text is saying is she began to think of herself as better than Sarai. This is, after all, a second marriage. She's been elevated from servant to the status of second wife, to the head of the household. And now she considers herself to be the better of the two wives because she's carrying Abram's child. And so she looks down upon the woman who's been unable to conceive. There are reverberations of this type of rivalry between wives all throughout the Old Testament. Wherever we see polygamous marriages in the Old Testament, you see these types of rivalries. Jacob's wives will have these issues. Hannah's story in 1 Samuel is is actually very similar to what we're seeing here. In 1 Samuel, uh, Penaniah is able to have children, and she despises Hannah, who is unable to have children. She looks down upon her. Ultimately, when I look at this, I see Abram as the cause of this issue, right? Because he took the second wife. He gave into this. But even so, when Hagar gives in the temptation to look down upon Sarai, she is sinning. Treating others with contempt because you have something that they want, regardless of how you got there, is a sinful response. And it, and it most certainly leads to further troubles. And that, that cycle of sin, the dominoes have come full circle. It's, it's gone from Sarai's heart to her outward sin against Abram to his sin against Hagar. Now, Hagar is sinning again against Sarai. We could do this all day, couldn't we? The, the vicious cycle of sin. So what will Sarai do? Will she put a stop to it? No. She's not, but we would expect, okay, now that she's feeling the impact of what she's done, that she's going to repent. She's going to confess her part in this mess, but she doesn't. And we know this, that's hard to do, isn't it? Once that cycle has started and begins to accelerate, it's hard to do. Sarah does not confess her part. Rather, she continues on as the one who has presumed to be the leader of the household. And so she casts the judgment. She passes the blame for her sin back to Abram and Hagar. She what's she doing? She's self-justifying. She's excusing her sin. This is all their fault. I was trying to be nice. And now no one is showing me appreciation for my generosity. If only they would have just been more thankful to me for encouraging them to get together then I wouldn't feel so hurt. Look at verse five. It's almost exactly what she says. And Sarah said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to you, to your, to your embrace. It's like the gift that I gave you. I didn't realize that what she's done has led to this. And when she saw that she conceived, she looked upon me with contempt. So I gave her to you. Now she's mad, and now I'm mad at you. May the Lord judge between you and me. The sins of unbelief and passivity and polygamy have led to the sins of rivalry and dissension and pride and this is just destroying Abram and Sarai's marriage, isn't it? Now the situation is totally out of control. Sarai is raging mad. What will what will Abram do now? Now is his opportunity. Now that he sees the mess, right? Will he take leadership of the situation now? Will he repent of his part in the mess and mediate between Sarai and Hagar as to bring some peace to the household? No. Abram, with the moral fortitude of a cup of water, takes the path of least resistance. He's just poured out and just like water takes the passive route again. Water doesn't flow uphill. Rather than leading his wife through repentance and faith, he gives in to her anger and he gives her what she wants, which again is not what she needs. She needs Abram's leadership here, doesn't she? She needs the hope of the gospel preached back to her. The promise of God preached back to her. She needs Abram's repentance for his com- complacency and passivity. But Abram doesn't give her any of that. He's passive again and cedes control again to Sarai so that she can control the situation. The last thing she needs, he gives her. But Abram says to Sarai, look at verse 6, Behold your servant, the servant who is Abram's wife, remember, your servant, I don't want anything to do with her anymore, is in your power. Do to her as you please. What did Sarah do? She dealt with her harshly. And Hagar fled from her. That, that phrasing, dealt harshly with her, that is the exact same language, language that will later be used to describe Egypt's dealing with Israel in Exodus chapter 1. When the tables are turned in the Egyptians, Hagar's the Egyptian here being mistreated by the Hebrew, the Egyptians. Well, turn that around and mistreat the Hebrews. Sort of a little irony that we won't understand until Exodus. Nonetheless, Sarai is wicked towards Hagar here. She's using force now to put rebellious Hagar back into submission. She's trying to force her to submit to her. Hagar, in her pride, won't humble herself before Sarai, so Sarai will beat her into humble servitude. And this is just the ugly bad fruit of lots and lots of sin spiraling, out of, spiraling further and further out of control and splattering all over the walls of the house. No one seems to be able to do anything to stop it. And we need to know as we look at this and we see ourselves in these three sinners We need to know that when we sin in response to sin, it never, ever, ever solves the problem. To to, to, to say something that we say to preschoolers but we don't even seem to get, two rights or two wrongs don't make a right, right? Like you you can't take a sinful response to someone who sinned against you and think that will fix it. It doesn't work. And anyone who's ever been in a fight knows that once you give in to that first temptation and you get that back and forth going, it just gets worse and worse and worse, doesn't it? And yet we just can't seem to stop. No matter, no matter how much we've learned. It, think about Abram's age here. He's 85. <laughs> how He has been married a long, long time you would think that he would have learned a few lessons about life in that time, but he hasn't. None of us do. We just can't stop. No matter our past experience, no matter what we know, no matter how hard we pause to to think about it, no matter how deep a hole that we've dug and how bad we've made the situation, in ourselves, we cannot stop this sin cycle because in ourselves, this is who we are. This is is what we are as Adam's descendants. We're fallen sinners. We're selfish, we're prideful, we're blame shifters, we're passive, we're cowardly, we make excuses, and we will treat people horribly if left unchecked. And Abram and Sarah have blown it. Just like Adam and Eve, they have failed. They have failed to trust in God's promises, and they've made a horrendous mess in the process. Abram's family now, rather than looking like the shining example of a Christian family, now his family looks like all the other families around him in Canaan. Broken and hurting. Even the child conceived as a result of this scheming is now gone. He's out in the wilderness, still in his mother's womb. They're on their way back to Egypt. That's where she's going. Long story short, Abram has ruined everything, and God has every right to withdraw his promises. Send Abram back east where he came from. Start over with somebody else. But God doesn't do that. Why? Because the promises that God has made to Abram are not contingent on Abram's sinlessness, his perfection, his righteousness. God's promises are contingent only upon God's goodness and faithfulness. Remember last week, This is why chapter 16 comes after chapter 15. Last week, Abram was counted as righteous. Why? Not because of his righteousness, but because of his faith in the coming promise, his faith in the Christ. So the reason that God does not judge Abram and Sarai for their sin here in chapter 16, the reason that this parallel to Eden doesn't have the same outcome as Eden is because Christ will die for the sins of chapter 16. The covenant that God swore to Abram in chapter 15 was a covenant of grace, not works. Grace. God has sworn that he and he alone will keep that covenant, and that's what he does. So the second half of Genesis 16 doesn't look anything like the second half of Genesis chapter 3. God's response to sin here is grace because God has promised grace. The Lord has promised good to me. His word, my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. Amazing grace. Even in my failure, there is grace. Even in your failure, there is grace. Because you are under Christ. Even in Abram's failure here, in Sarai's, there is grace for them. So let's look, the second half of Genesis 16, at the gracious response of God. There are four things that I will show you that grace brings to this situation. First of all, the grace of God brings restoration. Restoration, look at verse 7. In verse 7, the angel of the Lord, who's that? We learn from from. Pastor Saunders, back in December, this is the pre-incarnate Christ. Christ before Christmas. This is the second person of the Trinity. This is the Son of God. And he has shown up, he has manifested himself here as the messenger of God. And he seeks out Hagar. And Hagar's name means stranger. So as an Egyptian, she is a stranger to the promises She's been abused by the family of promises, and the Christ seeks her out, seeks her out. Hagar is not looking for Jesus here, is, is she? She's not looking for the Lord. She's not calling out to the Lord. She's running to Egypt, back to Egypt, where all of her pagan gods are. She's running away from Sarai's abuse. And yet the second person of the Trinity, the very person who has secured Abram's salvation despite his sin, that person shows up to take care of Hagar, the outsider. And there is a piece of the mystery of the gospel built into this text that I want you to see. Remember how God promised Abram that through his offspring, the nations would be blessed well, here is Hagar, who is of the nations. She is not a Hebrew. She's an Egyptian. She's a descendant of Ham. And the Son of God seeks her out, and he comes to her in a very unique and special way. Tender, even. That's a clue to us that this is the sort of thing that we can expect the Christ to do when he comes. In the New Testament, when he comes in the flesh, Christ is the Savior, not to the Hebrews only, but to the whole world. And then as a sort of echo of what he's doing here with Hagar, when you read the Gospels, you see scandalous Jesus going to a sinful Samaritan woman. She's an outsider. And then he's going to this Canaanite woman, and she's an outsider. And he'll go to a Syrophoenician woman. All of them Gentiles, Hagar's, strangers to the promises. And he will bless them with his presence and his love, much the same way that he does with Hagar here. I didn't see that when I taught you Matthew. I had not studied Genesis this way before, and now I'm loving to see it. So look now at verse 8. I want you to see the Lord's restoring grace in Hagar's life. First of all, look at the way that he treats her. He calls her by name. Now, that might seem unusual uh, to to say that this is unusual, (laughs) But the first thing he says to her is Hagar. And in this story, no one has called Hagar by her name yet. To Abram and Sarai, she's just a servant. She's a surrogate. She's, a, she's, she's less than human. But to the Lord, she's a person with a name. The Lord calls her by name. And in so doing, his restoring grace restores her dignity. Notice also that he calls her the servant of Sarai. He calls her Hagar, but then he says servant of Sarai. Now, if you go back to look at verse 3, the text says that Sarai gave Hagar her servant to Abram to be his wife. But the Lord does not ratify that marriage. He does not condone that polygamous marriage. After all, it is the Lord who made the one flesh union. And what the Lord has brought together, let no man or woman separate or multiply. In the Lord's definition, Hagar... Here is not Abram's wife. Sarai is. Hagar is Sarai's servant. So look what he does. Calls her servant. It's not an insult. He's restoring relationships here. He's restoring Hagar back to Sarai. Look at verse 9. Return to your mistress and submit to her. Literally what he's telling her is you need to humble yourself under her. In her sinful pride, Hagar had risen above her position. And she had begun to look down on Sarai. And in her sinful anger, Sarai abused Hagar, violently forced her into submission. But the Lord is restoring, in his restoring grace, he's instructing Hagar here, go back to your position of servitude. God's grace restores what has been broken. Secondly, God's grace gives hope. God's grace restores. God's grace gives hope. The Lord, I want you to see this because it's weird to us. The Lord is commanding Hagar to go back where? Into slavery. The Lord is sending Hagar back to her abuser. This is shocking and appalling in our culture today. American culture in general has erased most sins except for two. And these two sins, our culture has elevated almost to the point of unforgivability. And those two sins are slavery and abuse. And those are the very circumstances that the Lord is sending Hagar back into. And we look at this and say, I wouldn't do that if I were you, Lord. You're going to get canceled. But I don't think any of us would do what the Lord is doing here. We would have told Hagar, keep running. But here's the thing. We're not God, are we? We are not God. We we don't have the, the vision that the Lord has. The Lord can see into the future, and he can make promises that only he can keep. And, and there's a hope that he can give that only he can offer. So despite our discomfort with what we're seeing, we need to understand, when the Lord sent Hagar back to slavery, it is not because he's a moral monster, but because in his omniscience and his sovereignty, God knew that it was far better for Hagar to live in certitude, servitude in the house of promise than to live in freedom in Egypt. We say that again because this is, understanding the the glory of the gospel means we have to disconnect from the way the world thinks. This is really important. It is far better to live in servitude in the house of promise than to live in freedom in Egypt or anywhere else. Let me just carry this across to us. Whatever hardship you are enduring right now, enduring that hardship with the hope of Christ is far better, infinitely better than being freed from that earthly difficulty but cut off from Christ. And if you say, Dustin, you don't know how difficult my situation is. I don't have to. Because I know how great Christ is. How gratifying Christ is. As those who know Christ, we should be able to sing with the sons of Korah, Psalm 84. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Maybe Hagar doesn't understand that yet. That's hard to get so the lord in his grace towards her gives her something else to look forward to as well look at verse 10 of our text the angel of the lord also said to her you have all these angel of the lord also said also said also said giving her a lot he says i will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude now that's very similar to his promise to abram But that really is a repeat of the old Genesis 1 blessing, isn't it? That's the blessing given to the first humans way back in Genesis chapter 1. And here the Lord is giving this blessing to Hagar. He's saying to her, Hagar, you will participate in my blessing. That's hope, isn't it? He's giving her hope. The grace of God brings restoration. The grace of God brings hope. Thirdly, God's grace brings comfort. Look at verse 11. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. So the Lord has come to this woman. He has manifested himself to her. When she says, surely you are a God of seeing, what she's saying is, you have shown yourself to me. This is an outsider who gets to see the presence of God. This is... Is new. Again, a, a clue to the coming of Christ. But the Lord who has come to her is comforting this hurting woman in her fear and in her pregnancy and the Lord takes the, the, the task of naming her son for her. And what does that tell her? That tells her the Lord cares for this child even though the child's father doesn't seem to. Abram has neglected his duty. The Lord has come in his stead to care for the child and to name the child. And that name, Ishmael, is just as important as the naming itself. Ishmael means God hears. God hears. So from here on out, think about this. All of you who call out to your children's names, whenever Hagar calls out this little boy's name, from here on out, for the rest of her life, she will be proclaiming the truth about God, and she'll remember that the Lord came to her in her affliction and in her desperation, and she'll remember the Lord hears her prayers. And all of that, just that beautiful grace of God to her, comfort, restoration, hope, all of that is in God's response to what has taken place, which is just Horribly messy sin. In response to the sin of Abram and Sarah and Hagar, God's grace has brought restoration. Because actually, when 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 they go back, Abram will name the child, and he'll name the child Ishmael, which shows you that that relationship has also been restored between the father and son. God's grace will restore this situation. He will bring hope to this situation. He brings comfort even to the outsider, even to the stranger, Hagar, even, even to you and me. Christ, the offspring of Abram, brings the grace of God to the nations. He seeks us out as we're wandering in the wilderness, not even looking for him. And to us, Christ brings restoration to the Lord, bringing us to the Lord as his happy servants once again. And he gives us hope in the future And he comforts us and reminds us that he hears our prayers, that he is our intercessor. And if you're a Christian, just as you have sinned like Adam and Eve and Abram and Sarai and Hagar, the grace of God has come to you in the midst of your sin and and, and even from the fallout of your sin. In fact, that's where God's grace in Christ is most magnified in your life, isn't it? And it's tempting then to say in response, well, then sin doesn't matter. If this is what God's grace does for us in Christ, no matter what we've done or what we will do, then we may as well keep on sinning so that God will be more magnified in my life, right? No. And there are two reasons why not. First of all, go back and read Romans 6. That's why we read that today. But secondly, because God loves us and disciplines those he loves, He has made it so that sin, even sin that has been forgiven, has real-world consequences. Undesirable consequences, painful consequences, things we would want to avoid. And we see that in the Lord's oracle that He speaks to Hagar in verse 12. What he tells Hagar, that your son will be a wild donkey of a man who is against everyone and everyone's hand is against him and he will dwell over against his kinsmen, that is an oracle of coming consequences to the sin that has taken place here. The Ishmaelites really will become a desert dwelling people who are skilled in violence, skilled with the bow. And they will from here on out be a constant reminder to the Israelites of the consequences of Abram's sin. The real life, physical consequences that go on and on and on and on, even though his sin has been forgiven. It won't be long in Genesis before Abraham's great grandson Esau marries an Ishmaelite, and that causes problems. Then it is the Ishmaelites who will sell Joseph into slavery in Egypt. Another ironic twist. And then it is the Ishmaelites whom Gideon faces in battle. And because they were Ishmaelites, they wore earrings and Gideon and the people take the earrings and they make an idol out of them. Later on, Absalom, son of David, because of his complicated marriage decisions, he hired an Ishmaelite to lead his rebellion against King David. Asaph in Psalm 83 speaks of the Ishmaelites as one of the perennial enemies of Israel. Abram, through his sin, has introduced a difficulty, and it's probably an understatement, into his family that proved to be relationally insurmountable. Sarai, even 13 years later, fast-forwarding into Genesis a little bit, she will reveal that she has never really gotten past this episode And she becomes increasingly sensitive to Israel's presence in the house. One day he laughs and she wants him gone. We'll get to that story when we get to it. But for for now, I want us to grasp this one last lesson about the grace of God. Because of God's grace towards us, he disciplines us. If God had erased the difficulties that Abram and Sarai's sin had brought into this world, it would not have been kind Hebrews teaches us that the discipline of the Lord later yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God's earthly discipline humbles us and teaches us to submit to God's will rather than our own will. And this is for our own good. Ishmael, through his descendants, will be a disciplinary grace from God. A a means that God uses to teach his people the consequences of sin, the wickedness of sin, and to move them from that to the righteousness of God. And so when we look back at Genesis chapter 16 and we see it in that light, we see that everything, everything that God has done in response to Abram and Sarai's sin, all of it, grace all of it in the midst of our sin and in response to our sin the grace of god is revealed to us in christ and that brings forgiveness to us and the grace of god brings restoration between us and the lord and hope in a future and comfort in the in the in the here and now in discipline daily to train us in righteousness by the work of christ Our good Father forgives us of our sin, but he does not leave us in our sin. Amen? Let's praise him.